Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guests today are Kate Danielson with Foster Progress, located in Illinois, Elizabeth Bruchet, who is a former Chafee Program Manager in Montana, and Stephen Coop with Reach Higher Montana in Montana. Well, welcome everybody to the Aging Out Institute podcast series. I am so very glad that you could join us for this conversation. Today, we're going to be talking about helping foster youth achieve their educational goals. Before we dive into strategies and tools and all that good stuff, I'd like if everybody could please introduce yourselves and your organizations, and I'll turn things over to you, Kate, first. Hi, my name is Kate Danielson. I'm the founder and executive director of Foster Progress. We're located in Chicago and work in communities around the state of Illinois. And our mission is to help youth from care to become successful adults, specifically by supporting their post-secondary education pursuits. We have a number of programs to help to do that, which I can go into detail later. Okay. Oh, yes. We'll get to those. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Stephen, I'll turn it over to you for your introduction. Hi, my name is Stephen Coop. I work for a company called Reach Higher Montana. We are a nonprofit based out of Helena, Montana. I'm the programs manager, and we provide access to educational training vouchers, as well as other opportunities and programs for youth who are aging out of foster care. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Finally, Elizabeth, if you could please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Bruchet, and I work for Child and Family Services, and I reside in Lewistown, Montana. I was formerly the Chafee Program Manager for the state of Montana. I have now transitioned back into working as a child protection specialist, but I still work with our local youth advisory board. Wonderful. So you bring to us a couple of different perspectives. But I know that people may very well be interested in the Chafee program and knowing more about that. So we'll get to that as well. So let's go ahead and start our conversation about how to help young people in foster care achieve their educational goals. And of course, there are many possible goals. They could be to graduate from high school, to get a GED, to go on to college, to get some kind of vocational training, could be university, could be community college or one of those programs that has a certification. So there are lots of different avenues that young people can take in reaching educational goals. I know we've already talked a little bit about what your programs do, but let's go into a little more detail if you would. And we'll go to each person. If you can share in a little more detail, what type of educational goals do you help young people with and the support services that you provide? How about Kate, if we can go to you first? Sure. Our oldest running or longest running program is the mentoring and scholarship program where we match up a high school student with a one-on-one college educated mentor who meets with them on a weekly basis and helps them to finish high school strong and figure out what their next steps are going to be when they graduate. We're particularly interested in helping them to go to college, but we also support other types of post-secondary programs and certificate programs. And then we'll kind of walk with them through that process of applying and lining up all the financial aid that they're eligible for and, you know, moving onto campus and things like that. And we stick with them through at least 
until they're a sophomore in college so that they can really stabilize on the college campus. And they earn scholarship money through this mentoring program. So each time they meet with their mentor or attend an event, they earn $100 in scholarship money, which they can then use once they're enrolled in a post-secondary program. So they usually end up on average like earning about $4,000. And then we just started this year with our Department of Children and Family Services program called YCAP, and we're piloting it on six college campuses We're hiring peer advocates, so students who are on those campuses who experience foster care, who have had at least one year of success in college to run, you know, supportive groups and be like a near peer mentor to other students on campus who experienced care. And you said that's a new program. Yeah. You're piloting it. Yep. Wonderful. I believe I will be very interested in hearing how that turns out. Let me ask you this before we move on. What are the statistics in regard to young people who come out of foster care and they want a college degree as compared to those who actually achieve a college degree? Because I know there's quite a difference between the two. And if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've looked at the statistics, but it's something like 60 or 70 percent of young people want to get a college degree. But in the end, it's somewhere between one to 10%, let's say by the age of 26, that actually achieve it? Yeah. I mean, it's even more stark than that. So there's a study that was done in the Midwest where they followed about 700 young people who aged out of care and spoke with them at different touch points after they aged out. And one of the things that they talk about is, you know, how their careers and their desire for college and things like that. And 86% of those young people by the time, this was when they were 26 years old. So at age 26, 86% of them were saying that they really needed more education. They needed a college degree to get the kind of career and life that they wanted to have. And in Illinois, so like nationally, I know it's somewhere between three and 7% youth who age out who achieve a college degree. We're on the higher end in Illinois, and I hope that's due to some of the interventions that we've put in place. So something like seven or 8% end up with it. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, I wish it were more, but at least I'm glad that you're doing well in that regard. So yeah, it's a huge challenge and we can talk about the reasons for that later, but I just wanted to kind of set the stage with the statistics. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. All right, Stephen, how about if I pass it to you, if you could share in a little more detail what it is that your organization does? Absolutely, I'd be happy to do that. So Reach Higher Montana, as I said, is a nonprofit that's based in Helena, Montana. And we, Reach Higher has been around since about 2016 as Reach Higher Montana. But prior to that, we can go back three decades plus where we started as a student assistance foundation, as well as the Montana Higher Education Assistance Corps. Those two organizations initially were founded primarily on providing financial aid and working in the financial aid sectors. But when that was, when that ceased to exist in 2010, then MAHISAC, the Montana Higher Education Assistance Corps, kind of transitioned their services and how they provided. So from that, Reach Higher Montana became in existence. And we really strategically, our mission is to help students strategically pursue educational opportunities. So very broad 
It does not specify which students because we strive to serve all students in the state of Montana. And we help support them through community grants. We have dual enrollment supports. We provide all kinds of student services, network support, and again, primarily our outreach to our students in Montana. So our core focus when we're talking about foster youth who are transitioning out of care and going on to higher education pursuits, whether that be trades, two years, four years, or other certification programs. We manage the educational training voucher dollars for the state of Montana through a contract that we have with the Department of Health and Human Services. Those educational training voucher dollars are federal dollars that come into us that are a big source of support for the youth that are transitioning out and planning to go on to an accredited program where they can receive up to $5,000 a year up until age 26. They can receive it five times and it does not have to be consecutive. So through that program, we were able to to provide some financial support to help youth transitioning out of foster care move on. And we understand that sometimes there's struggles. Sometimes they're not ready to go right after they graduate high school. Sometimes they start and have to stop because of family issues or, or life events. So that's our big financial push. And then we also, every year, usually around the third week of June, we, with partnership with Department of Health and Human Services and Foster Club, we put on a three-day, two-night youth summit, which is aimed at youth that are ages 16 to 19, where we bring them to a college campus and we spend the time with them. They live in the dorms while we're there. And we spend the full amount of time working on college pursuits, their career pursuits, and life skills building. So everything that we can bring together, which includes a career fair for them as well, that helps support them in kind of identifying the next steps that they need to and how they need to process that going forward. The money that you're speaking of, the voucher, does that specifically go toward credits? Can it go toward room and board or can it be used for anything? It goes towards anything that is considered under cost of attendance, which is determined at the school levels. So there are direct costs and indirect costs, and that does include tuition and fees, as well as room and board, extra fees that they will have for their programming. And if they have documentation, like for childcare or things like that, then we can also contribute funding that helps them meet their financial goals that will allow them to go to school, remain in school, and hopefully graduate. Okay. And I know that there are states that cover the cost of college for young people coming out of foster care. Am I to assume then from this program that that does not happen in Montana? That is correct. At this time, we don't have a state support system in place. We did just have Senate Bill 482 pass our legislature this year, which is aimed at working towards a tuition waiver for youth who are aging out of foster care, but it is not fully implemented at this point, and it's optional as to the schools that can do it. Right. So right now, the schools are trying to figure out the best way to financially enable that to happen. It's a good point, because I think in some states, it's if it's part of the state university system, then they get the tuition free of charge, but maybe not necessarily private schools. So I think states do it differently. Correct. It would be nice if you kind of ended up without having a job because then, <laughs> then that would mean everybody's getting, you know, the, all these youth are getting free college tuition and other expenses paid for. But I imagine there may always be a need for your support in some form or fashion. Yes, I would say so. You know, our again, our foster youth are just a small percentage of the students that we serve. Yes, that's true. So I would not have to worry. I don't think about my job ending, but it would be great <laughs> if we could... If we could get all of our foster youth in a position where they didn't need the supports. 
Right. You know, and I think ultimately that should be the goal of every nonprofit, right, is to fulfill your mission and reach your vision, which probably means that the people that you serve don't need your service anymore. That would be the ideal situation. So we'll keep hoping for that in the future. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, I will pass things on to Elizabeth for your introduction and a little more detail about what you did previously with the Chafee program and anything else you'd like to share from your perspective and experience. Sure. So first of all, just to tell you a little bit about the Chafee program. So it's also known as the Montana Chafee Foster Care Independence Program. And it's actually a part of the Child and Family Services Division of the Department of Public Health and Human Services. Youth in foster care face challenges, unique and difficult ones, as they turn 18 and leave the foster care system. Studies indicate that they're less likely to finish high school and become self-supporting. They're more likely to be homeless or become parents at a young age. And the Montana Chafee Foster Care Independence Program is there striving to assist the youth in the foster care system by offering benefits to the eligible youth in order to avoid these circumstances. The services offered are intended to help Montana foster youth get the life skills they need to make a successful transition into adulthood by assisting them in achieving self-sufficiency and obtaining future goals and hopefully just help to support them having a healthy lifestyle and and be successful in the future. To be eligible for the Chafee program, the youth has to be between the ages of 14 and 21, currently in foster care, likely to age out of the system or has aged out of the foster care system, or they have to have achieved guardianship or adoption after the age of 16. And basically the process for that, to put it simply, is that when we have a youth enter foster care who's 14 or older, the assigned caseworker makes a referral to the Chafee program for that youth, and they are then connected with a provider. So the Chafee services themselves are through different providers around the state of Montana. And so there are different providers for each that covers each county in Montana. And once they're connected with that provider, they really work primarily with that provider on the Chafee program stuff. And that can be connecting them with, as far as the educational piece, the big connect there would actually be through Retire Montana. So the Chafee provider helps to connect that youth with Retire Montana to work on what their educational goals are and assist in any way as far as obtaining the education training vouchers or just even with help deciding what they would like to do as far as after high school. That's kind of the gist of the Chafee program. And even youth who have aged out of care in a different state, because this is all over the country, can be connected with the Chafee program to be able to be eligible for those things. And besides connecting with the education training vouchers, there's also stipends the youth can receive, and that can help with things like their first apartment or... It could even help with prom expenses or expenses related to what the youth is needing at the time that they connect with the program. Okay. And where does the money come from? I mean, when we tie to the education training vouchers, that's federal money. The JP program is a grant program. 
So does every state have Chafee dollars available or is it up to the state to apply for it? So maybe not all states have it? I believe every state has this, but I am not sure about the funding piece exactly. I do know there are Chafee providers in every state because when we have youth who go to a different state, there's a contact list for each state's Chafee. Like the Chafee program manager position is a position in each state. Okay. Well, that implies that there are Chafee dollars in every state then. Yes. Wonderful. Good. Thank you so much for sharing that. What are the biggest obstacles for youth in foster care coming out of foster care who have recently aged out in regard to them pursuing educational goals? And we could talk about post-secondary, but even high school, even GED. What are the challenges that these young people face? A lack of knowledge of what's available. Particularly, I think of when we have a kinship placement for youth, which we use kinship placements a lot. We have placed children in foster care. And a lot of times that's just families who are taking in these youth and just don't have the knowledge of what's out there and what's available and what that youth would be eligible for. So that's an example, just that lack of knowledge. Number two, a thought is just not being connected with Chafee. It is voluntary. And so we do have youth who enter care and they would be eligible for Chafee, but maybe they choose not to. So that can also be a barrier. I think also just not understanding what their options are. You know, just because you're going to college, it doesn't have to be a four-year college, things like that. Just knowing that that can be really flexible on like what you want to do. So that's my thoughts. Yeah, I agree with Elizabeth's assessment there. Like the lack of knowledge is a big deal for us in Illinois too. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that like state agencies aren't particularly great at having like a communication strategy and, you know, social media presence and that kind of thing. So it's hard to get the word out. And then the fact that this population is scattered and it's pretty niche, you know, the students who have experienced foster care who fit into these guidelines, it's hard to find them. Another like related barrier is just how transient they are and the instability that is typical of having been in foster care this long, you know, this late in your childhood, if you're still in care, like statistically, we know that kids in care who are teenagers have had five or more placements. And so there isn't like necessarily that one person that you can count on that you can turn to, to help you walk through this process, which is pretty difficult. And then also you know, just the instability of having a place to live is a huge barrier that we find we have quite a bit of difficulty. Like, you know, if you don't have a stable home, then you're not thinking about pursuing college and that just makes everything else so difficult. Yeah. You're thinking survival. Right. All the research will say that finances are a big barrier. And there is a lot of money in Illinois and throughout the U.S. for kids to go to college, financial aid to pay for their costs of attendance, and then programs to pay for their, sometimes their basic needs as well. But I find with our young people, those who are not thinking about college, it's often just really difficult to get them to take the time to invest in themselves for two years, four years, however long, 
because they're in survival mode. So they're not thinking about like, oh, if I spend the time and put in the hard work and also delay income for these four years, then I'm going to be better off in the long run. That kind of trade off that long-term thinking is so hard when you're in survival mode. And they have this like deadline of aging out looming in their mind. And they're very much thinking about like, I don't have a safety net that a typical young person would have in a, you know, in a traditional family. So they're very much like on their own financially. And so thinking about they need an income now and going to school full time or something like that puts delays that. Right. It makes me think when you're talking about the inconsistency, I was in foster care myself and my sister and I were in four different placements between group homes and kinship situations. And so we ourselves were in three different states. Educationally, having that consistency in high school, I imagine is a challenge in and of itself, just academically being ready because every school has its own requirements and you have to try to meet those requirements. And if you're in you know, a situation where you're bouncing around a lot and you're not happy with your placements and maybe hopefully not, but of course it happens, they're being mistreated. I would imagine that just not being academically prepared is an issue as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Stephen, what have we left out? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing that both Liz and Kate have said. It's Funding is a big challenge, again, because the safety net that youth that are raised by their birth family or parents tend to have a little bit deeper connection and that safety net financially is there. But I think that one of the big things that's been said, and I would like to hit on it some more, is just in general support. Because if they're a youth, like you mentioned yourself, that was bounced around three different states and multiple kinship and foster and group homes, they struggle with systems. And so to say, you know, you need to go talk to Chafee, a lot of times what we're seeing here in Montana is these youth are saying, you know what, we've been caught up in the system. We don't have trust in the system. So there needs to be some other types of supports that maybe aren't necessarily government related, which is what we at Reach Higher Montana try and do because we are not, we're a nonprofit. And we try and build those partnerships with those youth as soon as we can, beginning at age 16, really, that come to our summit and sticking with them and trying to help the youth understand that for the most part, long are gone the days where you graduated high school and had to go directly to a four-year program. I think it's it's becoming very, very well understood that our trades are a huge source of opportunity for these youth. And to have some time to spend with those youth and get them to better understand that the circumstances that they have lived in is not defining them. It's just a piece of their life and that they can have these high goals and objectives that will help them get to self-sufficiency where they have confidence in their own ability. And that can begin as early as just a certificate or a stackable credential that they can then move forward through time. And yes, the ETV dollars will run out at age 26, but there's a lot of education between 18 and 26 that can take place incrementally that ideally will help them understand those processes and understand what they can do maybe at a little bit slower pace than some other youth to get them to their end goal. And that can include you know, a doctorate degree. We just had a Montana youth graduate with his PhD from Montana State University Ideally, you know, we will have him come back and talk to our youth at the summit because that's one of the big things that we want to push is providing lived experience contacts so that youth that have gone on to be successful can work with some of these youth that just think they can't. The certificate programs are of particular interest to me. I'm thinking along the lines of the trades 
And I'm wondering, what's the opinion of the trades among young people today? I know when I was young, it was really just starting to ramp up where schools were not so much encouraging the trades and really focusing on college. And that kept escalating and fewer and fewer schools had auto shops or those types of programs in them. But I think right now we are in such desperate need of people in the trades and it can pay really well and you don't go into debt. (laughs) Even though I know college is huge as far as potential future earnings. Personally, I'm a big fan of encouraging young people to go into the trades, but what are young people these days thinking of the trades? What do they even consider it? Are more and more kids interested in it? Where does it stand? You know, I can speak for the experiences that we're having here in Montana. And the youth are beginning to take hold of that idea that the trades are a really good way to go. And we have two-year programs, some that are independent community colleges, and most of them are connected to our four-year institutions that are doing a great job of advertising out the potentials of how many jobs are going to be needed within the state of Montana. And because we're so ag-related and so vocational-related here in Montana, the need for plumbers and electricians and HVAC folks, welders... I mean, there are just so many traditional trades, but then there's a lot more things now that youth can get into, like the CNA programs for medical, because that is another thing that we're facing, I think, as a country, but definitely here in Montana, is having enough up-and-coming nurses and doctors or future doctors. So our youth, you know, we're taking as much opportunity as we can to share the potentials with them and to address the fact that, yes, if you go to a CNA, you're not going to be making as much money as a nurse initially, but as you grow and you're professional you may have a potential for those employers to say, hey, you've got, we see your potential. We're going to help you go that next level. We're going to help you out more. And they can pursue those higher credentials. So we are seeing the interest definitely in those trades programs or the traditional trades and non-traditional as well. Well, I'm glad to hear that. There are other opportunities out there too for money. I know the Micro works. Micro was the gentleman who had that dirty job show. And he has a foundation where he provides money to young people who are interested in the trades in scholarship form. So I'll throw that out there for anyone who might want to look into it. MicroWorks Foundation is what it's called. Are there any big picture policy type of solutions that could be done in the foster system to help alleviate some of these and mitigate some of these challenges? Or do you think it really is something that needs to be addressed by nonprofits and smaller organizations that can fill those gaps maybe more quickly? I think both are so important, you know, the big policy shifts and then the direct service that we can provide in the nonprofit sector. In Illinois, we helped to advocate for a couple of exciting changes I know a lot of states have tuition waivers now, so we do have that at our state public colleges. And then more recently, they mandated that all youth in foster care who are graduating high school, their caseworkers have to help them fill out the FAFSA. And then the FAFSA, you know, once you fill that out that and the colleges get your information, that prompts the colleges to then reach out to the student. And so that can really set the ball rolling in their favor. Another thing that just went into effect is that now all of our colleges in Illinois have to have a homeless and foster youth liaison on campus. So that's our, that new YCAP program that I was mentioning, it's called Youth in Care College Advocate Program. 
that we're working with those liaisons on campus to get the program rolling and to recruit students on campus. And then we're helping to train those liaisons as well. So the organization that really spearheaded that initiative was a homelessness prevention organization. So a lot of the liaisons are really focusing on the homeless youth. Of course, like foster youth have some overlap and some similarities in their needs and obstacles, but then of course they have some important differences too. So we're working on just raising the awareness of those liaisons like, hey, this is a different special population and we can help you to support them better. But I'm excited about it. I think it'll be really important for somebody on campus at every school, at every institution to be looking out for these young people, to be trained on how to best serve them, to be connected with the resources that they might need. I think it'll be an important step for our state. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, is that for just the state colleges? No, actually, all I just learned that even the private colleges have to have a liaison. It's similar to like the McKinney-Vinto liaisons for homeless youth in K-12 schools. That's a national thing. Okay. But that doesn't cover vocational programs. Depending on where the vocational programs are, like a lot of those are housed on like a community college campus, so they would have one. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. So first I've heard of that and I love it. Mm -hmm. So what else could be done, do you think? Bigger picture. You know, I think, and I love what Kate was just saying. I think one of the things that Chafee providers or you know, providers that are working with youth can do is try and help minimize or eliminate the stigma that's so often associated with the terms homeless or foster youth. I think they're very misunderstood terms. And unfortunately, the way the system works, I think in most places in the country, we expect those youth to self-identify. But when it's so heavily connotated with something negative... Who wants to step out and raise their hand and say, hey, I'm homeless or I'm a foster youth? So I think doing a better job with public service campaigns, I guess, would be the best way to say it, to help share the word that, you know, this just because this is a title, it does not mean that that's who that student is. Again, it's a lived experience. It does not define who they are and help people understand that there are a lot of incredibly successful people in our world today who even in what they're doing still don't necessarily come out and say, hey, I was a foster kid at one point. They go on and live their life successfully. So I think more understanding and awareness to where there's more people that want to support it and to make it easier for schools and community providers to be able to identify these kids without them having to step up themselves and identify through just sharing of information, you know, right off the bat. If our foster youth providers could make contact with the schools or the districts, and I know that it's very hard, if, especially if the student is changing homes frequently or in and out of youth groups, but to make it easier to identify those youth and then come at them. And you don't have to come at them as a, you're a foster youth. You can say, hey, you know, I understand that you've you've had some lived experience that you might need some other support. Here's what we can do. You would think that there could be some, with the technology we have today, some kind of foster youth registry that helps to track the young people really just to know where they are. And that they've spent time, maybe how much time in the system, that different people, you know, in schools, you know, healthcare, adults who have a support role in their lives would be able to access. Yeah, I think the thing that is preventing that is just the confidentiality of that status. But one thing that I've seen other states do that I would love to see more of is more institutions with like data sharing agreements so that 
you know, when like a state agency, like the department of children, and family service can share information about youth in care with the school systems and then with the colleges and things like that. I think that could get at some of what your database might be trying to accomplish. Well, once they leave foster care at 18 and they've aged out, they could opt into that kind of registry and share how much time they spent in the system. And so at least at that point, when they're that age, that they could start plugging that in. It doesn't help so much in, you know, during high school, but I understand the confidentiality challenges, but we're trying to support them better, right? Mm-hmm. That is one reason I really advocate for our youth engaging with the Chafee program because it does go to age 21 and it can kind of keep them connected for those few more years to be able to support them and hopefully be able to keep some sort of system of making them understand that they do have support. And there are ways that foster youth are tracked One of them is the National Youth in Transition Database, and I won't go into too much depth of that, but that is one of the ways that we do track foster youth and how they're doing. They do these surveys at age 17 and 19 and 21. I mean, not after that, but 21 kind of seems to be that stopping age. But just so you're aware, there is that National Youth in Transition Database that helps to track some foster youth. One thing I was going to say, and this sounds very simple and I know that, but one thing that I just feel like is so important too, particularly working for child and family services with our department and other departments of family services across the country is just keeping the field staff educated. You know, we obviously all know how busy family services staff are and overwhelmed. And so they need to be kept up to date and educated on what is available for those older youth. Particularly in Montana, when I think of the youth who are eligible for Chavy and maybe their caseworker didn't make the referral or whatever the case may be, or maybe the youth decided they didn't want to participate, when that Chavy provider can be such a huge support and connection for that child, whereas maybe the foster family or the caseworker isn't able to give that extra support. So just that education, and I think Montana Child and Family Services does a pretty incredible job of educating their staff, and I just think that's something that's super important, is making sure also providers, counselors, family support services, that these people are all aware of what's available to these youth in that age group. Here at Aging Out Institute, we've tried to pull together a national database of programs that support youth aging out of foster care, and there is a submission form for anyone who's listening that If you know of a program, feel free to submit it to us so we can add it to the database. Using something like that as a central source for programs could be very helpful, I think. Absolutely. Would it be feasible to incentivize foster parents, if not require them as part of their job as foster parents or group home staff, for providing opportunities, activities, and so forth that help young people in foster care reach educational goals. It's just a germ of an idea I had brought up in a previous podcast. And I'm just wondering if that's even feasible through government funds, through nonprofits. Is there a way to help incentivize them monetarily to do that? You know, that's a great question. And I don't know that I have an answer to that specifically. But that's in part, that's what Retire Montana and our Youth Summit that we do every summer does is the incentive really is 
one, the parents can send their kids to us because they have that interest and the desire to learn more at no cost to them. So though it's not a financial benefit directly to the family, it really is because they're not having to pay for this camp like you would for a sports camp or other type of summer camps. It comes down to really having strong partnerships in across the state and across the nation to enable organizations like ours to connect with other organizations to put these things on. You know, one of the ones that we use is Foster Club based out of Oregon. They're a fantastic organization that also has means to help support in these types of ways. So it's not, again, it's not so much incentivizing financially, but it's emphasizing the benefit of camps like ours that are aimed specifically at college and career advancement. It's an excellent point. I mean, helping, first of all, foster parents and group home staff, they would need to be aware of that opportunity, right? So it's an awareness campaign so that they know it exists and also the benefits of it. I just wonder about the foster parents and group home staff that might not be overly motivated (laughs) and how do we get them engaged in helping these young people more? It's a question I just think we don't need to answer today, but it's something I think that as a larger community in the country that we should think about. That's a really interesting idea. I'd love to see like a pilot done putting that incentive in place for foster parents. I think One thing that I come across with different audiences, sometimes foster parents, sometimes caseworkers, and sometimes others is, you know, I'll teach a workshop or something and inevitably someone will raise their hand and say, you know, college isn't for everyone. Of course, that's true, but it rubs me the wrong way because I think so often those of us, you know, who are kind of the gatekeepers, we have the keys to the opportunity we can rule out some young people from giving them access to something like college because we decide what is right for them or not. There's kids in our program, and I've met many adults who experience foster care who describe what they were like when they were teenagers. And I think, yeah, they were not the stereotypical, like on track for college kind of kid. I bet the people who knew them back then would be shocked to see how far they've come now. So, you know, like, for example, this woman who's a really successful lawyer and now law professor, you know, she started her own nonprofit and she sends care packages to all of our students. She's just really accomplished, really well put together. And she describes what she was like as a teenager. She was failing school. She was running away from home. She was getting in fights. She was a handful for her foster parents. So I just really tried to spread the message that these young people may surprise you. You know, I just want to, I want that pathway to college and any kind of post-secondary education to be open to anyone who is interested in it. So that's a piece of it. You know, I think sometimes those, like maybe an incentive for workers and foster parents to support these kinds of outcomes for youth would help to change their minds and help to just put some intentionality into, you know, as a nonprofit, all of us here on this call, like have incentives to meet certain outcomes, you know, to set goals and achieve them on behalf of these students to help them achieve certain outcomes. And so, yeah, I do wonder, like, what would it look like for foster parents to be thinking in the same way? Well, it's something that we can explore as a community, like I said, and maybe in the AOI community, we can have a conversation around that at some point. But I do want to move on. I know we had a couple of other questions here that I'd like to touch on. 
we had mentioned before the importance of relationships and having supportive adults in these young people's lives. I was wondering if we could flesh that out a little bit more. Why is it so important to have somebody who is in their lives, an adult, supportive adult, to help them set their goals and reach their goals? I think intuitively we all get it, but let's see if we can verbalize it for our audience here. Mm -hmm. One of Foster Progress's values is connection. And it says in specifically that we will keep that relationship as like a central part of our work and our intervention to help young people. So yeah, that's where, you know, the mentoring program came from. I think the answer to your question is just that this is for any young person, like these, you know, late high school and then beyond is such a hard time of life. It's just full of so many transitions and all of these systems that these young people are trying to navigate are difficult. And I think the folks who work in like higher education, for example, every industry has like their lingo and their acronyms and stuff. And I think we sometimes forget when we're talking to students that this is their first time doing it. And they don't always, you know, they don't understand like what exactly the FAFSA is and what's the difference between a scholarship and a grant. And, you know, whether this is like state aid or federal aid, because it makes a difference in how it's applied. It's a complicated process. And so I think they just need someone who is really dedicated to this particular part of their lives. We've had young people in our program who have wonderful foster homes or adoptive parents too. But like the relationship between a teenager and their parent or caregiver is oftentimes complicated. And even in the best scenarios, it can just be such a relief to have an additional person just backing up that relationship and supporting them so that they can focus on other things. I've had foster parents who just laugh because, you know, the mentor, they maybe have been telling the, the student a hundred times the same thing and the student's not listening, but then the, the mentor suggests it and the student listens <laughs> right away. Yep. <laughs> That's so true, isn't it? Or a peer, mm -hmm. right? If you had some kind of peer mentor, they're more likely to listen to that person than an adult even. I think there's a, probably a, a hierarchy there mm -hmm. <laughs> of who they'll listen to. But other thoughts, Elizabeth or Stephen, what would you say about the importance of relationships? I would like to say that that is absolutely accurate, that these relationships are what help everybody in the world. Everybody needs people. And when I look at our youth in foster care, that's one of the big reasons that the Chafee program is so important to me. It does give them a Chafee provider who is that person. They don't just help with connecting them with the educational resources or housing resources it's a person, it's a mentor, it's somebody to give them support and guidance, help connect them with the wonderful people at Reach Higher Montana, who can also be another support and be another form of a mentor for them. And the summit that Steve has talked about is very, very dear to my heart as well. And is another way we help make connections for these youth by connecting them with youth who are just like them, youth who are going through the same thing so that they have somebody who understands so I completely agree that having people and support is a huge piece of helping to make these youth successful. 
Yeah, and I don't want to sound like a broken record with the term <laughs> lived experiences, but I think that's where those relationships come in hand. And it's not so much because you're in foster youth, you need to be connected with another foster youth. It's you need to be connected with somebody who is willing to listen to you, to hear you. We've all had struggles in life. And I think we can sit down and identify commonalities in those struggles, whether it was how we felt. It might not be the exact struggle. So those relationships, I think, are are critical for helping these youth through those challenging times. As Kate had said, those late teenage years and early adulthood is a tremendous amount of change. So being able to connect youth with a partner, a friend, a mentor, some human support that they can just say, this doesn't make sense to me, or I'm really frustrated and angry about that. And that person can then say, you know what, I've been there, maybe not this exact way, but this is how I've experienced it. And let's talk through this. How can we get you from this dark space that you are to this really glorious space? And at the same time, there's youth that have great things that feel and they feel isolated. So these relationships can be there to help celebrate the successes and the wonderful opportunities and outcomes that are happening. It's just a trusted individual. And I think everybody needs them. So I would say that they're imperative that supports are there. And I would add consistent supports, because I think having that one person or more than one person who's in their lives consistently helps to build the trust that is so often difficult with young people in foster care. Absolutely. I would agree with that. I like the idea of the liaison, assuming it's the same person over time while they're in the in their college experience, that they have the same person that they can go to and build that relationship. Because it isn't just having the adult there, it's having the relationship. Right. And that's a challenge. You know, it's something to think about. As employers, I think we need to really be thinking about ways that we can retain employees like those liaisons and our own staff. And then as we recruit mentors for our programs, any volunteers that work with youth, you know, there's a handful of ways that you can retain those people, but it's something to be really conscious of. And then potentially partnering with other organizations that provide that kind of mentoring if you don't have it yourself. Partner with an organization or refer youth to CASA so that they can have that person, right? Not every organization has a mentoring program. So find a group out there that does that and partner with them. I know that we're pretty much at the end of our time here, but I just want to give everybody a chance. First of all, thank you very much for being here and talking about this topic. It's so very important to help guide these young people to to their goals, education included. And I thank you very much for the work that you do. For those listening, do you have any final piece of advice? Let's say they have an organization, they're working with young people who may be aging out of foster care or recently aged out. In regard to reaching educational goals, what piece of advice would you want to share? I'll go ahead and go first on this one. The advice that I would give is try and create opportunity for the youth to experience careers or schools, something through like a youth apprenticeship program or internship opportunities, anything that gives them that little extra piece of knowledge that they may not have that gives them something else to try and base their decisions on, to know that they're going in a direction that actually is something they're interested in or like. Opportunity is, I think, key to helping this demographic get to their career and educational goals. I would just like to say that, obviously, I'm a huge into that these youth who are in care need to be connected with the Chafee program. They need to have a Chafee provider. But I also just be proactive Here's something I tell the people I work with all the time is the squeaky wheel gets the oil. 
if you're not getting the answer you want or you're not getting the information you need, you got to sometimes keep bugging people or find somebody else to get a hold of. But there's going to be somebody who can help and to make sure that you just advocate for the youth and just talk to people until you get the information you need. Excellent. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Kate. Yeah, I guess my advice for folks who are working with youth is to set up your organization in a way that your staff is not easily burned out. You know, just being really careful about caseloads and things like that, because it is a difficult population and one that, you know, this type of work comes hand in hand with burnout. And I'm trying really hard to make Foster Progress a place that was not a burn and churn kind of employer. So that would be my main piece of advice. Again, thank you all so much for the work that you do with these young people. I admire the work that you do. And and I thank you very much because, again, from my own background, I was in foster care 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, in four different high schools. Thanks to the adults who were around, I was able to graduate from high school. I was very focused on it. It was like the one thing I could control in my life. So I did get good grades. I was able to get into college with assistance from people from the school. And then I was able to get my college degree and then a master's degree. So I really do understand the importance of having that person or people in your life to help you through because I've been there and my sister as well. So I just one want to thank you very much for helping these young people and being that person and your staff being those people. For those who have listened to the end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can come to our website at agingoutinstitute.org and look for the podcast link in the menu and you'll find all of our podcasts there. We're also on all of the podcast streaming platforms and you can find us there as well. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.